Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. In this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, I'm joined by Jackie Gavin, BEM, a leading transgender role model and true culture change champion who transforms organizational culture through her work in DEI and in people and culture. Jackie's path to working in people and culture has been unconventional, to say the least. Her career has spanned a whole host of different industries and achievements, from football, the army and modeling, to civil society, where she became a change maker in government, supporting the then prime minister on policy and guidance around transgender issues. In 2020, Jackie was awarded a British Empire Medal for her contribution to driving positive change in transgender issues in the workplace. She served as an ambassador for several charities promoting diversity and inclusion and working to eradicate homophobia, biphobia and transphobia. After finding her footing in civil service, Jackie went on to become the first ever chair of the Transgender Network within the Department for Work and Pensions, followed by chair of the Cross-Government Support Network for Transgender and Intersex Civil Servants. She successfully turned a lifetime of hate and transphobia on its head and channeled her efforts into making Britain a more accepting place. In this episode, Jackie relates her experiences back to the corporate world, and reinforces the importance of inclusion and how and why understanding your colleagues and the impact of being an ally can save and transform lives. Let's dive in. Hi, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining us on the Wellbeing Rebellion. It's such a treat to have you here. Great to be here. Believe me, I cannot believe that I'm here. I'm not technically here, but I'm here in the South. Oh, stop rubbing it in. Everybody, all Jackie has been saying for the last however long is how she's in France, how sunny it is in France. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm here in surprisingly sunny Manchester, surprisingly sunny, but not 22 plus degrees. Beautiful sunshine, indeed. 25 degrees. I don't care. I don't care. We don't need the sunshine and the warmth. We have heart, Jackie. We have heart. Anyway. And that's what matters, believe me. Heart is the biggest and the best thing in the world. Which is weirdly related to the kind of stuff that we're talking about in this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. It's almost like it was planned, that little intro. Indeed. You would think that was happening. It wasn't. It was it was completely unscripted, but it's like it was. Yeah. Listen, I alluded a little bit to it in my introduction of you, but I understand you've had a real journey from activist to DEI lead, people and culture lead. And I only met you in your current career phase, so I don't know much about it. For the benefit of me and other ignorant listeners, could you just Please tell us a bit about how you came to where you are today. Wow, and that's a that's a big question with a long, long answer. But yeah, it, it's a who is Jackie Gavin question. It's huge. So who is Jackie Gavin? Jackie Gavin, as you can tell by these dulcet tones, originated from that small place to the north. 
uh, called Scotland. Wales? Uh, no, no, I said no. I said no. Uh, <laughs> I was just joking. So I was born in Scotland. I was born in the small market town of St Andrews in the Kingdom of Fife in my native Scotland back in 1967. So my mother always described my childhood as being a shy, quiet and coothy child. And coothy is a good Scottish word. It basically means that you're a little bit shy, but you're also a little bit cheeky at the same time. Mm, I see it. Of course. I mean, everybody says it when they get to know me. But as a child also, I didn't really involve myself much. I didn't engage. I didn't want to be with people because of that slight shy edge that I had to myself. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't feel like like I could fit into anything in particular. I felt I just didn't belong. In fact, one of my earliest memories was probably when I was about five years old, when I started school for the first time. And I remember the teacher telling us that we had to go into two different lines, one for the boys and one for the girls. And I was like, but why? In the same way, why do boys have to wear one set of clothes and girls have to wear another set of clothes? And I just didn't feel that as a real, real sense of belonging. And then it wasn't until I was about nine years old, and just after my ninth birthday, when I was reading a magazine, or should I say more, looking at the pictures of a magazine, because I didn't know it at the time, but I'm dyslexic, and where words would jump all over the page... Pictures would tell me a million different kinds of stories I could get from it. And I remember seeing one particular image, and it was an image of a man, not an attractive man. But he was sat in what I came to know as the Christochelor pose, which is where the individual sits with the back of the chair up against their body and where the individual isn't wearing any clothes. I have to emphasise, it wasn't why I was attracted to the image, but it just was because he wasn't smiling. And I was like, Why is he not smiling? Surely everybody's supposed to smile in pictures. And then when I flipped over to the next page, I saw another picture of the same man. And this time he's ripping his skin off. But what he's revealing is under his male exterior is a female. Suddenly there was a wake-up call to me. That's what I've been missing. And I knew that I made a connection to being transgender at that early point in my life that I realised at age nine years old and I just was running around the house to use a good Scottish word like a loon going crazy, screaming pulling at my own skin, trying to find the girl underneath my skin Mm. and trying to find out who I was of course it scared and upset my parents and they decided to take me to the doctor as one does because I carried on this behaviour for a long, long period of time afterwards. And eventually the doctor said, oh, just get him to do boy type things. Of course, my dad was the captain of the Boys Brigade Company. So no sooner that happened, I was straight into the Boys Brigade. My dad was also the manager of the local football team. Guess what? I had to start playing football. And... I suppose to stop the bullying, etc., etc. I played football very, very, very well. In fact, mm. I went on to represent my school, my region, the Boys Brigade Company so well. And then eventually went on to represent my country at that level, of course, being the best country in the world, being, of course, Wales, Scotland. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But 
I knew that deep down inside me, I had to become me. So at 15 years old, I ran away from home to where the streets were paved with gold, that being the city of London. And I thought, you know what, this is where I can be true to myself. But sadly, within six months of that happening, mum was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She was also splitting up with my dad at that time. So I returned home, went back to school, and I was fortunate enough to get myself a career in the military. I thought being in the military, I could bury it, my feelings about wanting to transition. And of course, in the 1980s military, uh, where diversity and inclusion was not a thing, should we say, I had to hide it. I hid it fairly well until towards the end of my basic training when I fell off a scramble net and I smashed my kneecap up and I was being rushed to the hospital and apparently shouting at the top of my voice, I don't want to be a boy, I want to be a girl. (laughs) Not a good thing in the 1980s military. After recovering from that period of time, I then decided, you know what, I can't carry on in the military. I had to find a way to get out of the military. And not long after I left the military, I began the deeply personal process of going through my own gender transition. Went through that. Then I was fortunate, and I don't still don't know how this happened, but a photographer got to find out about me as a person as I presented myself to the world and said, you know what, I think you'd be good for doing some photographs. And I said, didn't think anything of it, just did it. And I became a successful model for some fairly big brands. And just after that period of time, of course, the media being what the media is, ran a series of headlines, you're a bit of all right, Jack. Yes, we did say, Jack, it's a man. And of course, my career as a model, as soon as it had begun, was quickly ended because nobody wanted what they profess to be a man pretending to be a female. So therefore, (laughs) my career, as I say, came to an end as quick as it started and then began my career of being a patchwork quilt where I went from job to job to job to job to job to job because nobody wanted anybody who was different working for them. And that was until I joined the civil service and joining the civil service, I was able to combine both myself as an activist, which I'd been doing for a long, long time before that. And they recognised I had that skill to be able to work with people and engage from both sides of the debate, where I was willing to work with government. And I worked to be able to make sure, first of all, in the Department for Work and Pensions, which at that time was a department of about 80 plus thousand employees, to make sure that they were inclusive of trans people. And then moving into a more central role leading the cross civil service network agenda for trans and intersex civil servants to really really get the civil service engaged in that process and then from there i then thought you know what why not move into a more wider role because this thing called diversity inclusion is important and how we embed it is really really important and therefore i went to department for international trade for my first role then back to the cabinet office for my second role. And then after that, I then moved into my role with British Volt, where I was successful with British Volt for a long, long period of time. And then after that, of course, we know what's happened. And I've just recently taken on a new role in the last 24 hours where I've agreed to take on a role with Britvic. 
congratulations. Thank you. So I did tell you guys, it was a very varied and interesting career path to DEI. And it was all born from personal experience that bred a passion and an interest and an excellence. As a transgender woman and an outspoken, or what was the word you said? Kuthi. Kuthi, yes. Kuthi, I like it. Activist for LGBTQ plus rights. You've alluded to it in your story, but you must have faced some really difficult, dark times. Yeah. And probably even dangerous times. There's been many, many times. I mean, back in the 1980s, even 90s, even today, it being different, there is challenges. Um, I think you and I have had a, a conversation with, from even when you're trying to resolve things from within the LGBT side, there are challenges. And there was one of those times back in 2014 where I felt I was really, really pushing the agenda forward in a really, really, really positive way. And when you get people turning against you for assumingly not having done enough to challenge things and not saying no enough or you need to change this enough, driving you to a place where it's a very, very dark place. And I've seen myself once upon a time stood on the platform at Warrington Bank Key State train station thinking, you know what, the seven o'clock express train's coming through any minute. It wouldn't be so easy just to fall in front of that train because you just felt, because you weren't doing enough from what they were saying, it led to that really, really difficult and challenging time. That's the word that drove me to that edge of darkness. That word enough. Yeah. Not good enough. Absolutely. It's the stick that too often we used to beat ourselves over the head till we're unconscious. But what stopped you from taking the jump? Very glad you didn't. For me, I'm a passionate individual. And I've often said that even when my life is over by natural or whatever means necessary, when they put me in my box, I'll still be going, one more thing before I go. Because that's the passion I have. That's the desire I have. That's the drive that I feel is so, so important for us to make sure that this happens. If we don't do it, then who's going to do it? And that's my drive that we need to be able to do. So I'm not going to give up. I I, I can't give up. I cannot just say, no, we're not going to do this. No, this cannot happen. We've got to make sure that this is something that is dealt with in an appropriate way. And my passion is that because of the polarised world that we're in at the moment, who else is going to say, well, what about, I hear what you're saying on the left-hand side, I hear what you're saying on the right-hand side. But you know what? The vast majority of us are sitting over here in the middle someplace. And that's why I will not let go because there are not enough people in this space. And it's people like you and me and Gozi that are the people that are really prepared to say, this matters to us. And this matters for all of us. Even you there, even you there, 
let's all pull together to make this go forward. I love that. And I feel honoured that you even put me in the same category. Um, the, the thing is, I find that, like many good things, DEI has become a bit of a, I don't know, it's just become one of those things, like well-being and mental health. It's just become a catch-all phrase, something that you throw away, mm-hmm. everybody says it. And I take it to mean DEI is just like how not to be a dick at work. Don't be a racist. Don't be homophobic. Don't be fascist. But it's too important to have such a generic meaning or to be so overused as to become meaningless. Could you explain to us, Jackie, what it really means? What is the distinct difference between diversity, equity, and inclusion? And do companies have to work towards all three? I think they have to work with all three. In fact, I would go build on that myself. But breaking down diversity, equity, and inclusion, I mean, to me, diversity is the mix that we all have in society. Let's be honest about it. I mean, there is such a mix with what we're trying to do and trying to understand that. Inclusion is about allowing people to have those reasonable adjustments that may allow for things to be able to people to be able to see. So there's a great image out there that shows that if you give people three boxes of varying different heights, the vertically challenged person will always never be able to see over the fence, whereas the tall person, regardless whether you give them a box or not, will be able to see over the fence. And the middle-sized person may also just be able to see over the fence if they get on their tiptoes. So looking at things through a reasonable adjustment lens, whereas equity is about taking away those barriers completely. It's about giving that sort of equal opportunity across all people and all those kind of things that that's the key thing that we need to be able to do in that kind of aspect. But as I say, to me, yes, it may be about equity, it may be about diversity, it may be about inclusion, but I see it that well-being has got to be there. Social mobility has also got to be something that's got to be in that space. Because unless we're prepared to invest, unless we're prepared to really, really engage in this subject, it will always be something that's just seen as an add-on. And one of the biggest challenges that we've got in the D or ADI space at the moment is it's a poorer relation within the wider people function or HR function, call it what you will. We've got to bring it in to something that allows for people to say, you know what, we've got to invest in this. And it's got to be an investment that means that regardless of what department you work in, you know what, I want 10% of your budget from operations. I want 10% of your budget from this area or that area or that area. Because just having it as that add-on, it becomes just an add-on and nobody wants that. That's the first time I've heard anybody mention it. I really like that idea of because money is always the excuse. And I'm saying this bluntly, guys. It's an excuse for why well-being, mental health, DEI, any 
initiative to do with bettering the workplace is ignored. Oh, no, no, we haven't got the funds. And it's always those things which are all about levelling us all up that are the first to get cut in favour of, you know, the more business-oriented stuff, which, you know, I've spoken on other episodes about how that is a false understanding of what productivity and profitability levers really are, but still... I like the idea of saying, right, these budgets that don't typically exist on balance sheets right now can be taken from existing department budgets and just say, because it is something that's all pervasive and it impacts everybody, draw from existing budgets and say, I want to take 10% from everyone or 5% from everyone or whatever it is to create a pool that will improve the, the working lives of all of the staff. Well, isn't that what culture is? I mean, you can have all the the best policies in the world based around EDI, but unless you get people to buy into it, unless you get people invested in what it is that you're wanting to be able to do, because every single business out there has its own defined culture. And unless you invest in that culture to be something that you all are bought into right from the moment you write a job advert right from the moment somebody comes in for an interview right from the moment somebody who you've offered that role to that you know that that person is going to succeed it's not necessarily just about the qualifications they've got it's not necessarily just about so many different things, whereas if we actually recognise it, if we've got a culture that means that we empower the people, because they're the most valuable resource that we've got in any business. You could have the best IT, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But unless you've got people who want to be there, because we spend, what, 35, 37, 40 and more hours a week there, and then even for the people who are part-time, what are we doing to make them feel better? What are we doing to make sure that people from different minority groups feel included and are able to be a part of the story? Because we're all a part of the story that builds to the culture, that builds a great organisation. Surely that's what we want to all achieve. I would have thought so. And you've been in this profession for a little while now like what two or three years since you left school two or three just 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 a couple but like I, I I say we say this all the time and I sometimes wonder if I'm falling victim of this eco chamber is that what echo chamber not eco chamber everybody's in an eco chamber echo chamber because I'm talking to people who seem to be reflecting what I think which is the world is better when the people are placed center stage and therefore we find room for all kinds of people, all kinds of talents, and we support them, nurture them, and then they give us their best. And, and nobody really tends to disagree with me. But then in reality, I, I've attended a few industry, cross-industry events recently awards and ceremonies recognizing excellence in various different industries and professions. I was at one just the other night and of, let's say there were a hundred nominees for 
the best professional in that category. Of the 100 nominees, there was one black man, one black woman, one Southeast Asian man, and one lady of Oriental descent. And of the winners, so there were 10 winners, only the latter two were the only non-white winners. And I thought, this is probably exactly what it was like when I attended events like this 20 years ago. It hasn't actually changed, even though there seems to be so much talk about DEI. When I first went into the world of work, there were no such thing as DEI professionals, particularly. Nobody had a career in EDI. Now there are. Now there are industries around it. It's a multi-billion dollar industry globally. I'm not actually seeing any change. And statistically, it seems to be getting worse in some places. So I wonder, as a professional in this area, are you noticing a different approach? Or is this just another way of marketing to the masses by placating them, saying, yeah, yeah, we're inclusive, we're inclusive. We're inclusive everywhere you can see and nowhere where you won't look. It's an interesting debate, and I absolutely echo the points that you've just raised there. I mean, my biggest challenge is that, and I won't name any of those well-known awards, but whenever we look at some of those award ceremonies, it feels in so many ways like we're backslapping. And why are we not celebrating much wider than, for example, the London bubble. There is a lot of those particular award ceremonies which are always in the same place. It's the same people. It's the same individuals that are being given the the opportunity, as I would call it, to either be a part of the judging group or being a part of the wider organisation that is going to categorize those people in a top list of the top 100 individuals or whatever it may be. You know what? There are a multitude of many people who are trying to make a difference, who are booting their own, going back to the analogy that you used, booting their lives on the line and their honesty, their transparency, and their real, real willingness to say, I'm prepared to share who I am, but we're forgetting about them because, well, they don't fit a a specific kind of way of looking or whatever it may be, or we're basing it on who they know. We're basing it on how much money they can bring. We're basing it on the job they do. Well, actually, whether they're a more senior executive or whether they're the cleaner or someplace in between, everybody adds value. And the sooner we recognise that, and sooner we can make award ceremonies that celebrate it, that's the real aspect about it. And building on that, I'm a speaker for TLC Lions, which is a wonderful organisation. And when we think about TLC, what they've done, they've got something called Being Human Awards. And Sir Trevor MacDonald was there. And he gave a wonderful rendition about this. And 
it is about being human. And that, to me, matters enormously, that we start to recognise people for being who they are and just living the best life they can. Wouldn't it be great if at the end of everybody's living on this mortal coil, we get, we had could create that sort of, I'm going to give you three wishes to take off your bucket list that we can make things for you before you pass into that box. Wouldn't it be great if we could do that? Because everybody deserves that opportunity. That's a really positive note to end on. Optimistic. I feel like we need to do more, but I'm not sure how that's going to happen. Because when I look back at the event yesterday, there was so much, as you put it, backslapping, congratulating and rejoicing and celebrating and not enough recognition of difference. And I think what made it more uncomfortable for me was that of the, let's say, thousand people there, there were only literally one handful of non-white people, literally, I'm not even exaggerating, but of the serving staff at the venue, there was the same number of white people compared to blacks and Asians. And so I just thought, this doesn't look any different to, you know, segregated 1950s US. And we, in this country at least, seem to think we are very progressive. And so it does disturb me because I think it comes down to blind spots again. Like who, when publishing the list of the nominees, didn't think, hmm, there's not a lot of diversity here. Well, you won't if you are looking at it going, but Tom's got blonde hair and Peter's got brown hair. That's that's different. They don't look all the same. You don't see what you don't see anyway. I know we'll have many, many more conversations about this, but I just feel like as organisations, you need to do it not because it's the right thing to do morally or not simply because it's the moral thing to do because the shareholders ultimately don't care about morals. They need financial incentives. But like I've said a thousand times, the financial incentives are there. Diverse companies and truly diverse. Not, but all the cleaning staff are black, diverse, but <laughs> we have diversity in our marketing, in our sales, in our R&D, in our HR, in our everything at all levels, not just at the top where the decisions are made, but all the way through, we have diversity. Therefore, we can better adjust to market conditions as they change. We can better respond to the dynamics of a global economy. We are more like our clients than our competitors are. Therefore, we will succeed. To me, that's reason enough. Regardless of what your organization does, you will have customers. And your customers will come in all shapes and sizes and colors. And the sooner business recognizes that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yes, many organizations have 
done a phenomenal job and I'm not here to criticize that. But you know what? You've got to still remember the the average organization has gone from having none to having lots, but we've forgotten about the masses in the middle. There's still many people sitting in the middle going, but what do you mean I can't come along to that because I'm not that kind of person or I can't go along to that because I'm not that kind of person. We've got to remember, and again, this is why I go back to the whole thing around culture. Culture is so important. You get your culture right, then guess what? You're going to naturally bring in more diversity. You're going to naturally be a more inclusive organization. You're going to naturally consider people's well-being. You're going to naturally consider that I don't care if you've got the best degree from Oxbridge or if you've got nothing whatsoever or you really struggle because of dyslexia or dyspraxia or whatever neurodiverse condition. It just happens because people will fit the jigsaw and make complete the picture. Thank you. And before I let you go, I'm going to ask you our signature question. Mm. As a fellow well-being rebel, what is the one change that you'd like to see implemented in workplace well-being? Listening. Listening, listening, listening. We do a lot of tell, 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 tell. But we need to start to really listen. We've got two of these for a reason and one of these for a reason. I love that. Yep, I can't agree anymore. It is the first thing that we need to do. Listen, that's why it's the first pillar or in our well-being framework, discovery, go and find out. So yeah, it's like we're singing from the same hymn sheet, Jackie. One would think so, wouldn't they? Yeah. Thank you so, so much for taking the time out from your vacation in sunny France. Um, I'm a little jealous, but I'll, I'll not hold it against you. Oh, mind you, I'll send you some pictures. Yes, please. Send me lots of them and some cheese and wine and baguettes. Thank you. I look forward to speaking with you again sometime in the future. Jackie, take care. Thank you very much for joining us on the Wellbeing Rebellion. Anytime, anytime. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.